Hello, hello. Wow, thank you, thank you. I, uh, man, I love following along what God is doing at New Hope. I mean, just to see um, that song rattle. I'm like playing that song like all the time. I just go to the, the New Hope page in YouTube and I just like show that. I'm just playing, I mean, it's just, you, you're fantastic, bro. Your worship team's fantastic. It's amazing. Uh, and, then, and then just to, to see like at Easter and just the series, the miracle of mercy and talk about celebration of hope and to think about 860 of you volunteered and all of the meal packs that you provided. And there's people who went to the DR to serve this past week. And I'm just sitting here going, this is unbelievable what God is doing. And then I show up today and 30 some people get baptized. They're like, what is going on? And I, uh, I, I, a group of people who never get recognized uh, is this crew right here. And they are gonna, they're gonna hate me right now. Is the tech team. Yeah, they are amazing. They, yeah, yeah, give it up to that team. They are solid, solid, yeah. Uh, Austin. Austin was like running back and forth, and Bobby, I was standing back there, and Bobby was like listening as the song, you know, um, you know, talking about the revival that was, and we kept singing it, and he was like, boom, and it went straight to the shot outside, and then boom, right back to the song, and it was like, what is going on? And then I still don't understand how Reese changed so quickly. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know, how, I don't know what's happening here. But the Lord is on the move, and uh, Reese, man, I love you, bro. I love what God is doing here. But hey, let me dive in and ask a simple question. Do you ever wonder why people do what they do? Do you ever wonder, like, why did she say that? Did you ever wonder, like, what was my family thinking? What was my boss doing? Why'd they say that? Why'd they tweet that? Or maybe, maybe the better question is, um, why do I do? what I do. Have any of you ever wrestled, why do I do what I do? And the rest of you are lying, but, um, <laughs> but I want you to know you are in good company because the apostle Paul, the man who wrote the majority of the New Testament, he said these words in Romans chapter 7 verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. This is like one of the wisest people who wrote the majority of the New Testament. And he's like, uh, yeah, there are still these moments in my life that I don't understand. Like there's this good I want to do and there's this thing I hate and at some moments of my life, I choose the good, but there are so many moments throughout my day where I do the thing I do not want to do. Now, here's what you have to understand. When, when the scriptures were written in the New Testament almost 2,000 years ago, I don't think they had the emotional intelligence and self-awareness that we have today. So there's not this moment where your wife can step up to you and be like, babe, why did you say that? And you can't go, well, quoting my favorite scripture... I do not understand what I do, babe. And what's her response gonna be? Do better. Do better. Like, I, I think we can't get to this point where we're like, I just don't understand. 
And there's work that we have to do as humans, as disciples, if we are going to represent Christ well. And oftentimes, what breaks our heart is when we see good, sincere people in a moment of stress misrepresent Christ. And so what I wanna do is I wanna teach you. I wanna teach you a phrase. I wanna teach you what I've spent 20 years studying the scriptures, trying to understand and answer this simple question, not just why other people do what they do, but honestly, why do I do what I do? And what God has shown me through his word has forever changed me. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Esther. And Esther's in the Old Testament. Uh, it's page 387 if you have a small black Bible. <laughs> but what's, what's amazing about this story that I'm about to teach you is I'm gonna do it a little bit different. Usually when you start in chapter three, you start at verse one. I'm gonna start at the very end and we're gonna go backwards. Because sometimes I, I think we can see something when we read it a different way. So this is how chapter three ends. Verse 15 says, the king and Haman, who is his right-hand man, if you're a fan of the play Hamilton, the king and his right-hand man sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. And the original word for bewildered means utterly confused by the decisions that were made. So you have the king He's right-hand man sitting down to have a drink. I don't know what they're drinking. But what I do know is the entire town is utterly confused, wondering what were they thinking. The king and his right-hand man seem like they are exhaling after a day of leading and building and managing while the rest of the town is wondering what is going on. Have you ever had one of those moments? You came home and you were like, what was my boss thinking? What is my family thinking? What are the neighbors thinking? And if we're really, really honest, there are times where you and your spouse are sitting down at the end of the night having a drink and your kids are going, what are they thinking? And here's the truth. Decisions that we often make bewilder people, confuse people. Make people wonder. And the question is, why is the city so bewildered? Well, you see, in verse 13, it says, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, that's December 12th, same day that the world birthed Jamie Foxx and Taylor Swift, true story, <laughs> the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So why is the entire city bewildered? Because a genocide has been decreed. I don't know if you've ever seen the effects of a genocide. A number of years ago, in the great country of Rwanda, two tribes the Hutu and the Tutsis went after each other. And the UN records that in 100 days, there was between 800,000 and 1 million deaths. Shortly after the genocide took place, I flew there. And I'll never forget walking and just seeing people missing limbs, the violence, the pain, the destruction, the two tribes going after each other. And you have a king and his right-hand man 
bewildering an entire city because a decree of a genocide has been unleashed for December 13th. Which makes you wonder, how do you pull off a genocide? How do you do that? Look what it says in verse eight. Then Haman, the right-hand man to the king, said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If you have a Bible, just highlight that word, tolerate. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Now get this. King Xerxes' grandfather was a man by the name of King Cyrus. King Cyrus, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that when the Jewish nation was in exile, they had been taken to Babylon. That's where we get the great Bob Marley song from the Psalms, by the rivers of Babylon. We cried out and we remembered Zion. We remembered Jerusalem. And they longed and they prayed for the day that they would be able to return. And one day, a prophecy was made that there would be a king who would be the Lord's anointed His name would be Cyrus, and he would shepherd the people out of exile back home to rebuild the temple. But Cyrus wasn't a believer. And one day, as Cyrus comes to overtake Babylon, some Jewish men bring him a scroll that was written hundreds of years earlier. The scriptures begin to detail him like seeing this and being so moved that he sends and frees and releases the people to return back to Jerusalem and he'll literally bankroll the rebuilding of the temple. This was King Xerxes' grandfather, King Cyrus. Cyrus was known as one of the greatest leaders ever. King Cyrus was this Persian king who was unlike other leaders because when you overtook a land, you'd often rape and kill and pillage. Not Cyrus. Cyrus would invite you into a role on his cabinet. He loved to actually believe that a world could be better with different cultures. And he did this often. And so now you have Haman saying, King Xerxes, I know that your family is known as a group of people who tolerate But this group of people isn't worth it. They're too different. And you, you don't deserve to have to put up with them. So much so that I'm even gonna put my own money towards the killing, the genocide of this Jewish people. And look what the king says. The king said to Haman, keep the money and do with the people as you please. So you have to think to yourself, why, why would Haman want to bankroll a genocide? Why would he do this? What, would, what must have happened in this man's life? What must these Jewish people done to him that he would want to wipe them all out? Why? What must have happened? Well, you gotta understand that when Haman was put into charge as the second most important person In Xerxes' kingdom, there was a decree that was written that everywhere that Haman would go, the entire room that he entered, if they saw him, 
had to kneel down and show him honor. And so imagine what this would do to your ego. You show up to the marketplace and everybody Tebows in your honor. They just like get down on a knee and you're like, yeah, I'm, 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 a, I'm a big deal. And just imagine you're walking in and just people, and some people don't even just kneel, they lay prostrate on the ground and they start like crying out these words of glory and honor over Haman. When you get to chapter three, verse two, we're introduced to a new character, a Jewish man by the name of Mordecai. And look what it says. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So everybody else kneels down, but Mordecai just stands. And when you read verse five, look what it says. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So, so why was a genocide decided? Why was a genocide decreed? Because one dude named Mordecai wouldn't kneel down. Isn't that wild? I mean, you sit here and I think, just, just, just hear my heart, know this, New Hope. I don't think any one of you, any one of you, would either attempt, plan, bankroll, or try to perform a genocide. But I do believe there has been moments where someone has disrespected you or not given you a sense of honor or has cut you off on the highway or has not given you the reply that you wanted in the due time on email or threw some shade at you on Facebook and something happened inside of you. I had this happen a number of years ago. I was living in Grand Rapids and I was coming home from my grandparents' house. I'm driving in my little 2000 Honda Civic. My wife is in the riding shotgun. My nine month old is in the back seat. Flurries are just dropping. It's about 8.45 at night. This little cool snowstorm that's happening and I'm driving this Civic. And I'm driving, talking with my wife when all of a sudden something hits my windshield, like a chunk of ice. And I, I, I'm not really thinking about it, but I kind of swerve and my, my Civic like dances and slides on the road. And I, I go about a quarter of a mile when something hits me. Somebody threw that chunk of ice at me. So what do I do? I turn the car around. <laughs> And my wife's like, oh, hey, uh, what, what are you doing? I'm like, somebody threw that chunk of ice. And she's like, it's, it's, babe, it's getting late. Let's just go home. I'm like, no, the injustice. <laughs> I pull the car over and in the distance, I can see someone running, which now just gets me a lot hotter. My wife's like, Steve, Steve. And then she says, Steven, when I know I'm in trouble. And I'm like, babe, I gotta handle this. I close the door, I run across four lanes of traffic, there's an embankment. I think I can jump it. I realize midway through, I can't. 
And what I do is I land in this snow-covered stream of water up until my waist, freezing cold water, and now I'm really mad. And I'm like, I see you! I'm gonna find you! And I'm so cold! And there's this open field, and I just start taking off, running as fast as I can. And it leads to this suburban neighborhood cul-de-sac and I run as fast as I can, and because I watch CSI, I know what to do. <laughs> I get into the middle of this cul-de-sac, I close my eyes and just start to turn. And I'm listening, I'm listening. And all of a sudden I hear a garage door close three doors down, I'm like, boom, I know where it is. I go to this house, I knock on the door, I'm out of breath, soaking wet pants, and an older gentleman comes to the door. Hi there, I'm like, hey. Did just some college-age students just run inside through your garage? He's like, no, uh, but my grandson and his buddy did. I'm like, great, can I have a word with them? He's like, yeah, for sure. He goes, he closes the door to get them. And in this moment, I have the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord just kind of gently whispers to me, what are you doing? Your wife and nine-month-old are on the side of the road. You're soaking wet pants. You're a middle school pastor. What's the plan, Steve? And in this moment, the door opens, and I see two sixth graders like scared puppies looking at me. And I just look at them, and I go, Nice shot, and I walk away. <laughs> and I find myself the next day calling my mentor, and my mentor just laughs, and he just says, Steve, welcome to the thing beneath the thing. The endless discovery of what's really going on. The truth is, my dad had leukemia, and he was at my grandparents' house, and the prognosis had returned, and I couldn't fix it. And on my way to my grandparents' house, the people who were gonna buy our house in Grand Rapids because we had just taken a new job at a church in California had backed out. And I was scared, and I was worried, and I was out of control, and I didn't know how to actually have that honest and human conversation and then two sixth graders gave me a chance to react. You know what's amazing is whenever you react, you know what you're doing? You're just reenacting the past. Whenever you get hysterical, it's most often historical. Because underneath us are some pain. And this is, this is the wild piece is that thing is an acronym. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that this simple question, what's the thing beneath the thing? What's really going on? Begins to work its way into this New Hope Church so that you don't just run off and do the thing you don't want to do, but you get curious to understand why you're doing what you do and what the scriptures have to teach you about it. Thing is an acronym. And the first letter is the letter T, which is the word triggers. 
And triggers are the setup that sets us off. And here's the truth. Every single day, you're gonna be triggered. And what I need you to understand is sometimes, sometimes for us, we don't actually understand what's going on. See, I live in Chicago, and I love the city of Chicago. But nobody told me when I moved to Chicago that there was a massive problem. And you know what that problem is? Potholes. <laughs> they are literally everywhere. And what's amazing is, is you'll be driving and you'll be listening to sports radio and then all of a sudden you'll hit a pothole and you'll be like, whoa. And this is what happened to me. And I remember pulling the car over and realizing, man, I got a flat tire. And I looked at it, but I learned that in the city of Chicago, if you dial 311, you can report a pothole. And if the pothole's been reported and the city hasn't dealt with it in due time, they'll literally pay for the damages to your vehicle which no wonder the city of Chicago is going bankrupt, but that's another sermon. <laughs> so I, I, I prayed to the Lord. I said, Lord, you know the cries. I got a flat tire. I'm praying for just clerical error. A lady picks up. I report the pothole, the street, the corner, and she's like, sorry, Steve, you're the first one. I'm like, it's okay. But I'm like, you have your own number, ma'am. How many potholes do you fill in to have your own number? She's like, well, in the last 100 days, we filled in over 130,000 potholes. I'm like, what? What in the world? She's like, if you go to our website, with like all of the pride and joy, this woman says, if you go to the city of Chicago's website, we have a pothole tracker where we show our work. I'm like, what is going on in our world? Like, I'm like, what do you do for a living? Well, I update the pothole tracker. Uh, it's just amazing. And so this is what they do. Potholes happen, and you guys don't understand this because you have perfect weather here, but like potholes happen because water freezes and the asphalt isn't like our sweatpants and it can't expand. And so when it, when it can't expand, all of a sudden it creates this crater commonly known as a pothole. And so the city of Chicago goes out to the pothole and it recognizes, oh man, we just need to fill it in with some asphalt. So they, they take some asphalt and then they go to the pothole tracker and they click the box and they got 129,000 potholes to go. But sometimes, sometimes, sometimes they show up to a pothole. And it wasn't caused by inclement weather. There's like actually something that's underneath the surface that's happening. Some level of erosion, some leaky pipe, something in the sewage system. And if they don't deal with that first, that pothole can quickly become a sinkhole. And this is what happened in the city of Chicago. A 70-year-old guy was driving and the entire road gave out and he dropped down two stories. He ended up going to the hospital, he's fine now, but millions of dollars of damage. Why do I say this? Because the truth is to be human and to rub shoulders with broken and beautiful people every single day, you have a bunch of potholes. And what's amazing is every single day, somebody without even noting, noticing it or realizing it hits one of those pain points, those wounds, those struggles. And all of a sudden, you feel this sense of energy rush through your body. Maybe it's because someone minimized you Someone didn't give you the respect that you felt you deserved. Maybe someone didn't follow through. Maybe someone abandoned you, but somehow somebody's 
choice or words or decisions or tone or actions trigger you. And the triggers are the setup that sets you off. And what I've come to realize is that most people will go to one of four places when they get triggered. The first place that most people go to is hideouts. And these are the metaphoric spaces we go to escape the pain of our story. Because we all have potholes. And all of a sudden, someone gets close to it. And all of a sudden, we're like, oh, what am I supposed to do? And we don't know what to, we don't want to feel all of this anger. We don't want to feel all the sadness. We don't feel all of this anxiety. We don't feel all of the stress or worry. And we got we to gotta place it somewhere. And so what do we do? We grab a bowl of ice cream. Or we go to the mall and we buy a brand new pair of shoes. Or, or we find ourselves just taking all of that angst and I'm just going to work, work my tail off. And see, there's socially acceptable escapes. I'm just going to numb out and watch the entire season of my favorite show in one night on Hulu. We have these, we have these socially acceptable, like, oh, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay. But then, then we also have these socially unacceptable escapes. All of a sudden, we find ourselves walking and just drowning our sorrows and addiction or relationships that are unhealthy. And we find ourselves, this is all we're doing is someone triggered us and we didn't know what to do with that. And so all of a sudden, we took this worry and anxiety and placed it on this thing, this hideout, hoping that we could be okay. And what John Ortberg says is, Alcohol, food, work, buying stuff. In the moment, it will give you a fleeting sense of peace, but it will never make you a person of peace. When you get triggered, where do you go to hide out? Tim Keller will call these hideouts counterfeit gods. The Bible will call them idols. And the majority of sincere Christ followers that I've met are not aware of their triggers and they have completely minimized the power of their idols. What about you? When you get triggered, where do you go? The second place I've come to realize that many people go when they get triggered is to insecurities. And insecurities are the false stories we create about ourselves. Friends, do you understand that you were created in the image of God? The same God who shaped and formed the Appalachian Trail and the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. The same God who dreamed up guacamole <laughs> made you. Shaped and formed for a purpose. But here's what happens, is sometimes we get triggered and in the moment, What's the story we tell about ourselves? Oh, I'm so stupid. Why am I such a screw up? Why would I, I always make these mistakes? My siblings don't make these mistakes. Why, what's wrong with me? And you know what we do? And you know what gossip is? Gossip is just Plato theology. Gossip is like when you shape and form some person into an image and present that in front of a group of people and you're like, that's who that person is. But you know what's amazing is the way that we talk about gossip often is about other people. 
But you know that you gossip often about yourself when you let insecurity run amok in your life? What are you doing? You're shaping and you're forming. I'm stupid. I'm not enough. I'm just my past. I'm such a failure. I'm not enough. And you start to believe that over the reality that you were created in the image of God. And for some of us, when we get triggered and all of a sudden the lies, the stories that we begin to tell, what many of us do is we end up shutting down, escaping, leaving the conversation, almost like leaving our body, just floating away into these fantasies of just self-rejection. But there's another thing I realized when you walk through the cities in the ancient Near East, most of these cities had massive amphitheaters. They were massive. Like the city of Ephesus, where the, the, the book of Ephesians was written to. They have this amphitheater that seats 25,000 people. And when they would go out and they would have a performance where two actors, and these actors would have backpacks, and inside these backpacks they would put on a mask, and they would become this persona, this character, and they would act in a way, and then they would be this person, and then the other person would pull out a mask and be someone, and then that other person would switch and become another character by putting on a mask, and they called these actors hypocrites, people who could wear masks. And what's amazing is often for many of us in the face of insecurity, we don't know how to just name the fact that we got triggered and we're feeling profoundly less than. For many of us, it's in these moments out of insecurity that we put on a mask and we start to perform. The performer mask. I just gotta, I gotta, I gotta, like, I gotta master this moment. I gotta own this moment because my palms are sweaty. Mom's spaghetti. You know what I mean? I just gotta, I gotta, I gotta go for it. I only got one shot, mom. You know, I gotta go for it. For some of us, we, we find ourselves putting on the pleaser mask. I just gotta make everybody happy. I just gotta go clean everything. I gotta make everyone happy. I can't even talk about what's happening in here, but I'm gonna make everyone happy. And if everyone's happy, then I'm okay. For some of us, it's like, we're just gonna pretend. Gonna pretend that I have it all together. Gonna fake it till I make it. I'm just gonna pretend, gonna pretend, gonna pretend. I'm not gonna do my own internal work. I'm just pretending. For some of us, we're gonna be perfectionists. And they're really fun to be around. <laughs> Everything's gotta be perfect. Everything's gotta be perfect. They're just perfectionists. And it's all insecurity. And it's some of us, when we feel like we're losing control of the meeting, of the family, in the conversation, we don't power down. But out of our insecurity, what do we do? We power up. We slam our fists on the table. We speak with a tone that minimizes the person in front of us. And it can be emotionally abusive. It can be spiritually abusive. And for many of us, we grew up in systems where verbal abuse was okay. And as I've gotten older, I've come to realize, oh, you got triggered. And out of your own insecurity, you didn't know how to talk about it. So you didn't do your work. You just transferred your pain onto me or onto those around you. You see how dangerous this can get? Yes. See, when we get triggered, many of us are gonna run to a hideout, but many of us, we have these stories. Just think about the enemy who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If you're not aware of those lies and the power of those lies, what does the enemy wanna do? 
Just have you live in that reality and play small and watch your potholes become sinkholes that don't just affect you, but affect those around you. I found that there's another place that people go when they get triggered. They get triggered and all of a sudden, they don't run to a hideout, they don't tell a false story about themselves, but it's narratives. They create false stories about others. And this is literally what Twitter is. <laughs> Facebook, where real crazy lives, the next door app. This is where billions, <laughs> you all know what I'm talking about. I mean, like on every other social media, you can have bots and you pretend, but a next door app is like, this is who I am and this is what I think about Sally who lives two doors down. <laughs> You're like, bro, calm down, calm down. But here's the truth. You gotta understand that there are billions and billions of dollars that are being injected into our world every single day to have you hate the other. To have you not see that your neighbor was created in the image of God, but to only see the labels based on their past or who they voted for or who a teen they root for or what they like or where they're from or their race, all of that. And we are not the United States of America. We are more divided than ever. And many of us have been groomed and taught and discipled more from an anchor person than the man who is anchoring our faith. And what you often see then is all of a sudden, and you'll hear it. I'm not saying it comes out of your mouth, but you will hear it. Well, it's all those people. Like all, all of them, they all, they all act that way, they all do that. And we, every one of them, and you sit there and you're like, man, this is, this is, this is not the heart of God. And it's just someone got triggered and didn't know how to be honest. They're scared or didn't know what to say or do in that moment. And then what do they do? Out of their enragement, lash out and say things that break the heart of God. But there's another place. There's another place that we can go. But few of us often go there. And for many years, I didn't even go. I remember one day I came home from a meeting and I was really, really mad. My wife sees me, she's like, what's going on? I was like, well, he did it again. What, who, who did, what, what? How the guy, man, I shared my idea and the guy just shut it down. And you know what my wife's response was? Isn't God so kind? What do you mean God's so kind? The guy was a jerk, have my back. Why is God so kind? And she said, well, God's so kind because this person reminds you of someone who deeply wounded you. And for the majority of your life, you haven't had the courage to actually face that pain and that ache and that wound. And so God in his kindness keeps bringing people into your life until you'll have the courage to honor that pain. So the question is, is today the day, Steve? You know what I said to her? Get behind me, Satan. No, I did not. I did not. I did not say that. I did not say that. But she was right. Because here's the deal. For many of us, when we get triggered, we feel like it's permission and license to lose our ever-loving mind. 
We think it's licensed to go escape, to think false stories about ourselves or about other people. But you know what this really is? That's about us having the courage and the trust in God to say, here are my potholes. I don't want them to become sinkholes. I need grace. And what's amazing is the way that we often teach grace is leaving here because we receive the story, the free gift of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and going from here to be with God up there for eternity. And it's true, and it's beautiful. But what John Wesley spoke about was that's only one stage of grace. And he says that there's actually three stages of grace and he says that the second stage of grace is what he calls sanctifying grace. It's not us trying to get from here to there. It's actually taking all of the goodness of there and having it fill in all of the pain that is in here. And grace is that final place we can go where we allow, and it's this ongoing spiritual process to make us whole and holy and spiritually healthy. And friends, I want you to understand, you will be triggered. You will be triggered today, multiple times. But it is now your decision and your responsibility, am I now gonna choose an unhealthy escape and hideout, an unhealthy lie that is not true about me or an unhealthy story about someone else or am I going to do the work to open my one in life, one and only life up to the God that wants to not just save me and rescue me, but heal me and set me free. This is what God wants. God wants you to be whole. And can you imagine a world when all of a sudden you get triggered and you're like, oh my goodness, Two years ago, if that same interaction would have happened, I would have given that person the business, you know what I mean, and felt good about it. Or if, or if all of a sudden I had gotten that same situation and gotten triggered, I would have spiraled and told myself a story about me that's alive from the pit of hell. Or I mean, oh my goodness, I would have said this and villainized that group of people. Can you imagine if you were like, I am so grounded and connected to Jesus and the story of grace, and instead of running to something else to give me a fleeting sense of my okayness, I actually came to the Father and said, I need you to help me heal from the pain of my parents or the pain of this experience. I need help to forgive I need help to actually see me as you see me, to actually be a person who walks in grace. As you know that if you ever found yourself in Israel, when someone sees you, they often will say, shalom, which is so fun to say, shalom. When you walk into a room, shalom, which means peace or peace upon you, shalom. That's what people say. That's like the, the, the greeting. When you come, when you go, shalom. But Paul, when you read the New Testament, he actually changes it and he says grace and peace because he recognizes that the only way that I can walk in true shalom is if I understand true grace. 
And when we can be the kind of people who allow grace into these potholes so that they don't become sinkholes that affect all of those around us, but we actually turn to the Father and become whole and become holy and become spiritually healthy, then people will look at our lives and say, something's different. One of my favorite writers, Henry Nouwen, used to be a professor at Yale and Harvard, and, and one day a former student happened to be in town doing business and decided to kind of just show up at Yale and kind of sit in the back of his class. And at the end of the, the teach, he, he, he walked up and said, Dr. Nowen, you don't remember me. A couple years ago, I took your class. It literally just blew my mind. I, I'm here for business. This is probably crazy, but any chance you're free for lunch or coffee? And Dr. Nowen said, well, someone canceled on me today. I'm, I'm actually free. He's like, let's go right now. And so for the next two hours, they sat on Yale's campus and they just exchanged conversations. And at the very end of the conversation, this former student looks at Dr. Nowen and says, Dr. Nowen, when I'm with you, I feel as if I'm in the presence of Christ. And Nowen stepped back and was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then he said these words, my son, it's the Christ in you that recognizes the Christ in me. And here's what I'm telling you. I've never ever met someone who was healthy and filled with joy and peace and patience and love and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control when someone who was a, not a follower of Jesus was like, I can't stand that. I can't stand healthy people. I can't stand people of grace. I can't stand people who've done their work. I can't stand people who are just have this way, even in the midst of stress. But nobody just drifts there. And the enemy wants you to run to a hideout and wants you to tell a false story and wants you to create false narratives. But the way of the scriptures, the way of the kingdom, the way of Jesus, it's all about grace. So I pray, my friends, that you would be so aware of your potholes. Many of them were not fair. You didn't deserve them. But it's your responsibility now. And there's many times that I find myself in the midst and seeing those potholes, and I don't know what to do. So I say a simple breath prayer, which is, I can't. Christ, you can. I think I'll let you. No unhealthy escapes. May I just choose to find more of your grace and more of your peace so that through my life, people will see Christ at work in me. Much love, new hope. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Grace and peace.